Welcome to the church family that is lifting lives through living love, inspiring hope, filling with faith, and transforming our world. These recorded messages are made available so that you might have additional opportunities to stay connected with us, and then you might learn and grow in your faith. God bless you as you hear the word today. And now, the message. Today's scripture is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. May the Lord bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Today we have a guest preacher who's with us, and I'm going to give an introduction in just a few moments, but let me first explain uh, why Andy is with us today. So uh, we have a a hole in our church, a donut, if you will, that's been here uh, long before I arrived, that we do really great ministry with with children and youth kind of through high school graduation. And then, and then there's this gap where we begin to lose touch with them during college and through the 20s. And, and then when people kind of get married and have kids, then they come back to church. That's been the cycle for a long time. That's not unique to us as a church. It's not unique. It's nothing new, I guess, under the sun. But it's been something we've, you know, realized that there's this gap that's 10 to 12 years where people are not connected to church. And you think about all the transitions, all the challenges that are happening in that age range. And I know many of you have children or grandchildren who are in that age who are not connected to a church. And when they go through tough times, you feel that hurt. You feel that pain of, you know, I wish they were connected to a church. I wish. So this is something we as a church have been trying to work on in my entire time here. And we're excited to be able to partner 
with Fuller Youth Institute out of California. Uh, to they, They've been working on this problem for years, have done research around the country, and, and so Andy is part of a team uh, that is here from Fuller Youth Institute. Uh, his partner is uh, Jake Mulder, who I believe is also around. There's uh, well, I don't see Jake, and he, maybe he's out in the lobby. Uh, and so they've, they've come in this weekend to spend time with us and have done listening sessions with different groups within the church. I think six different focus groups that you mm-hmm. guys are part of, and about 50 members of the church, uh, give or take, have spent time with them sharing about our church and what we are doing and what, we, what you would like to see us do. And so he's here to kind of help paint a picture for us of why this ministry is important, what's going to be ahead for us for the next 9 to 12 months as we do this work with Fuller Youth Institute. And so can you uh, join me in giving a warm welcome to Andy Young? Thank you. It is a joy to be with you all today. And uh, I'm just so grateful. I've had a wonderful time getting to know many of you and uh, hearing your stories uh, and um, learning about the church. Uh, and what a beautiful time to be together as we celebrate baptism, as we welcome new members uh, into the congregation. Uh, it's a vibrant church that we see already. Uh, that doesn't mean that there's not places where we need to uh, improve. And so we want to help you do that. We want to help you journey with your young adults and your young people. So uh, we're grateful for this time. A 13-year-old Steve came up to his pastor after, his, after the worship service. And he raised his finger like this and he asked, Pastor, does God know, even before I raise my finger, that I'm about to do that? And the pastor looked at Steve and said, well, yes, Steve, God knows all things. So yes, God knows that. And then Steve reached into his back pocket, pulled out a piece of paper, unfolded it, and showed it to his pastor and said, Pastor, does God know what's about to happen to these two kids? Remember the Life magazines? It was a cover page of that. And it was a picture of the two uh, uh, children from Africa with distended stomachs due to starvation. And here, Steve is asking this big question. And the pastor looks at Steve and says, Steve, I know you don't understand, but yes, God knows about those two kids also. Unfortunately, Steve wasn't all that impressed with that answer. And he walked out of that sanctuary that day, never to enter into another Christian service that we know of. You see, Steve was dealing with a lot of stuff as he was asking this uh, big existential question of who is God. You see, Steve was a 13-year-old boy who who was dealing with a lot that was going on in his life. He was being bullied at school. His parents were dealing with financial issues at home and he knew about it. And he was also trying to figure out why, why would my parents, my birth parents give me up for adoption? There he was dealing with the the pain in his own life and trying to figure out where is God in all of this as he was showing that picture to his pastor. Now, I don't think we can blame that on the pastor. And maybe the pastor didn't take the time to, to, 
to answer Steve's question in full. But you see, Steve just wanted his pastor to, to spend a few moments to help him to understand why there was so much pain in his life. You may know of this, Steve, or have at least heard of him. His last name is Jobs. Yes, that's Steve Jobs, the former CEO of Apple, who's no longer here with us. But, but I wonder what would have happened. I wonder what would have happened in his life if he had caring Christian adults who would have walked alongside of him to help him understand the mysteries of life and the mysteries of faith, to help him understand why there was so much pain in his own life and why there was so much pain all around that he sees in the world. I wonder what it would have been like. In today's text, we find this familiar story for many of us, the Good Samaritan story. It's a parable that is taught quite often, and, and, and oftentimes we take away the general lesson of, well, if you see someone in the ditch, the right thing to do, the Christian thing to do is to go and help that person, right? And it is. That's what we definitely should take away from this parable. And we've also heard of the fact that the Samaritans were not the most well-liked people back in those times. And we know that the Samaritans were hated by the Jews, and so we know the evil of racial injustice, religious prejudice, and how we are to, to fight against those things. But we need to maybe remember in what context that this conversation was happening, right? Here, the teacher, the law, or the lawyer is coming to Jesus, not to ask Jesus an earnest question, but really to test Jesus, to trap Jesus into saying something that he could take back and say, see, we need to get rid of this man. And so the teacher of the law, the lawyer, comes and says, Jesus, what must I do to receive eternal life? And Jesus, who always answers a question with a question, says, well, what do you think? Right? What do you think? And of course, the lawyer gives the right answer. It's the Shema. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's the things that, that he has heard for many years and has taught for many years. And to love yourself as you, to love your neighbor as yourself. So he answers the right question, but, but with the right answer, but he, then he says, then who is my neighbor, Jesus? Who is my neighbor? And then it's at that point that Jesus goes into this parable. And here, the religious leaders, the Levite, walks past by someone who has been beaten, someone who's in the ditch, who's left for dead. And it's the Samaritan that comes by. It's the Samaritan that comes by and helps this person. To take, some, uh, to take him to the, uh, to the inn, to care for him, to pay for the expenses, 
and then to come back from whatever he was doing to, of his travel and to care for that person once again. The lawyer's question and Jesus' answer here might not necessarily match up just the way that he thought it should. But we need to remember what Jesus was really saying right here. Jesus was saying, for you Jews, you think that God is only for the Jews, but I have come so that, so that God's love is for all people for the Jews and the Gentiles. God is the God of grace. God is the God of love for the whole world and not just for a certain group of people. But even going a little deeper, I really do believe that Jesus is really saying that when you go and help someone, it isn't that you're just helping that person, right? It's that you're helping yourself, you're learning and you're growing and you're getting better at following Jesus when you do that. Isn't that what we experience when we go on a service trip, on a mission trip, right? You come back more with more blessings than you've actually given when you're gone. And that's why we learn and that's how we grow by serving others. So what does all of this mean? when it comes to young people. So let me try to help connect some dots here. And, and I'm going to ask that you give me a little latitude uh, this morning as we try to figure out what it means from the Good Samaritan parable to our young adults or young people today. And I want to I wanna, uh, help us think about the fact that maybe, you know, as we look at this parable, we always look at it from the perspective of the Samaritan or perspective of those two that walk by. But maybe we need to look at it from the perspective of the person who's been left in the ditch, who had been robbed and beaten and left by the side of the road. And maybe, somehow, that may be our young adults today. So I want to make that uh, connection for us. So you're going to have to give me a little bit of latitude as we do that. Of course, I asked, I asked some groups like this, oftentimes when we're teaching, and, and we ask them, hey, what are the labels that you hear of young people today? And when we ask people that question, there's no doubt that we get answers like, well, they're just lazy. They're just entitled. They're always just stuck to their phones. They just only think about themselves. Now, young people in the room, they don't think that about you, right? They only think about those other young people out there. So don't think that our, your church family thinks that about you, right? Thankfully, we also hear words like this, talented and gifted, just disoriented, passionate, wanting to change the world. Those are the things that we also hear about our young people. We just don't often focus on that, do we? Everyone desires stability. Everyone desires predictability because life is just crazy enough, right? So we want some, some, some stability in life. And so looking at it from a 10,000-foot perspective, so 
when, whenever we do, do this, we know that you can always think of someone, hey, that, doesn't, that young person doesn't fit that. No, that young person doesn't fit that. But we want to look at it from a 10,000-foot perspective and say, hey, this is the generalities in which we have seen our young people. And so when we think about this, that our young people are asked, hey, this is the path of your life. It's fairly linear. For most of us, this is the way that we grew up, right? This was the pattern in which we lived life. We graduated high school. We went off to college. We found a job. Uh, we got married, uh, and we started having kids, and we couldn't mess up the order, right? Now, that wasn't everybody's life, but for, for many of us, that was the order in which things happened. Today, that just isn't the reality for our young people, though. Today, it's more like this. That's the life that our young people encounter today. So when life looks like this, it causes a great deal of uncertainty. It causes a great deal of anxiety. Trust me, if you ask any young adult, they would much rather desire the linear path because it is full of stability and predictability. But when life looks like this, anxiety sets in. And they wonder, gosh, why is it so complicated? Why is life so complicated? And why is it like this? It's because a lot of things have changed. Our culture has shifted. Things like amount of education, change in family structure, all of those things add up to the fact that when it used to take when, when we used to reach adulthood by the age of 18 or 19, now sociologists and, and, and uh, experts would say that, that young people don't reach adulthood until they reach ages of 18, um, 28 to 29 to 30. That adolescent period has now extended to that far in length. That they don't reach adulthood until into the late 20s. Now, some of you may be thinking, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm going to have to support my child until that long. And others of you are thinking, oh, thank you for naming what I'm feeling. Thank you for naming that. Right. Here's how some things have changed. The median age for first marriage now is 28 for women and 30 for men. They're waiting much longer to get married. When it used to be that many of you got married at 18, 22, 23, I got married at 22 and didn't know what I was doing, thankfully, because I would have been too scared to get married otherwise. But for now, our young people don't get, often get married until they're into their late 20s and 30s. The average age of, uh, of women bearing their first child is now 30. The median age, excuse me, is 30. In other words, they're having families later now. So if we're thinking as a church, hey, you know, let them go off to college, do their thing. They'll get married, start having kids, and come back to church, which is the way that we've always thought. Well, think about it now. 
When it used to be, hey, they're leaving at 18 and coming back at 22 or 23, they're leaving at 18 and their mile markers are much further down the line of 28, 29, 30. And imagine what happens in that length of time to a person's spiritual life, to their life experiences, and, and what it might be like, how hard it might be to bridge back into the church. It's a given that young people from a middle class to upper middle class area would, would assume that they're going off to college, that there are no questions to that. And, and today, because of the marketplace, that not only is undergrad important, but then now we've got to go get a master's degree. Now we've got to go get a doctorate degree. And, and oftentimes our young people aren't even coming out of school until they're 26 or 27. And they're not entering into their job field until that time. You see how things have changed over the years? Things have lengthened along the way. Now our young people are having to deal with the results of the pandemic. Pandemic has been hard for everyone, right? For every age group, the pandemic has been difficult, but especially difficult for our young people and their mental health. We know that the, the, uh, the amount of young people who are uh, dealing with anxiety has tripled over the last two and a half years. Uh, the amount of depression has quadrupled in that same period of time, so much so that it's one out of every four young people who deal with either anxiety or depression or both. One out of four. And there's so many more reasons why, why things have shifted and, and, and life is so different than it was maybe 30, 40, 50 years ago. All of us grew up um, asking three questions, three kind of big meta questions in life. Questions of who am I, where do I fit, and what difference can I make? We call those identity, belonging, and purpose. Matter of fact, we're constantly answering these questions, no matter what stage of life we're in. And every one of us are asking these questions, right? If you're a new parent, you're asking these questions of, who am I? Where do I fit? What difference can I make? If you find a new job, you're asking those same three questions. If you uh, retire from a job, you're asking those same three questions. If you've lost a spouse, you're asking those same three questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? At what difference, and what difference can I make? But for young people, they're asking these questions so intensely that it's constantly right in front of them. We do it to them, right? Every senior or junior or senior in high school that we meet, what do we ask them? Where do you want to go to school? What do you want to major in? What do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know what I want to be when I grow up, and I'm almost 49 years old. These questions are so intense for our young people that it's always right in front of them. And they're having to answer it time and time again. For young people, they feel this pressure to answer these three questions of identity, belonging, and purpose. 
And they do it with what we refer to as with less relational support, with less adult relational support, meaning that our young people today have less adults in their lives than ever before. They have less adults in their lives than ever before. And so who are they going to turn to to answer these questions? They're going to turn to one another and say, who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference can I make? And, and unfortunately, oftentimes they find the wrong answers when they're asking one another to help with that. They're finding answers that are filled with shame, that are uh, finding answers that are filled with conditional acceptance. They're finding answers that are just filled with self-fulfillment. When in the church we have the better answers, don't we? When in the church we have the better answers of who am I? You are a son or a daughter of God. Someone whom God loves deeply. That there's nothing you can do to make God love you any less or to make God love you any more. Where do I fit? You fit right here in the body of Christ with the people of God because there's community here. And what difference can you make? Well, God has given us the, the great commission, the great commandment to love one another, to go out and, and to make disciples of others. We have the better answers here in the church, don't we? Yet sometimes we have a hard time communicating that. Sometimes we just have a hard time letting them know that. So how might we respond? What do we do with all of this? We're going to be talking about that a lot over the next year. But just for two things that I want you to take away from this time, two things. One, maybe what we need to do is really begin thinking about how do we empathize with our young people? How do we empathize with our young people? How do we get to know young adults in our lives? high schoolers, college students in our lives and say, hey, you know, what's it like? What's it like being young today? Don't ask that question unless you really want to know because they will tell you. But empathy means it's a sense of feeling with, it's the idea of stepping into their shoes, sitting on a curb, sitting on the end of a dock and just having a conversation with a young person. And the last two words on that slide is so important, right? And not judging. Young people often tell us that that's the second, num number two reason of why they don't come to church. Because they feel judged. They feel judged. So we got to develop empathy for our young people Second thing that we may want to take away from this morning is, is we want you to be thinking about a five-to-one ratio. A five-to-one ratio. Typically in youth ministry, we think if, hey, if we have an adult for every five young people going off on a retreat, we're doing pretty well. We're going to make sure that those kids come back home safe. And we're asking you to now flip that ratio and say, hey, we need five adults for every young person. Not to go on a retreat. That would be an adult retreat 
with a few young people. But we need five caring Christian adults for every young person. Here's what we mean by that. We need five adults outside of their parents who know them, but know them so well that they know their joys and their pains of that young person, the hopes and dreams of that young person and what they're dealing with. And here's the catch. The only way that you're going to be able to do that, the only way that you're going to build that kind of relationship with young people is if they trust you. And the only way they're going to trust you is that if you stop trying to fix their lives and you just listen, you just be with them and you love them and you care for them. That it's not about helping them to, uh, or seeing them as problems to be solved, because they're not. They're gifts to be received. They're people to, to be known and to be seen and to be cared for and to be loved just the way that we were, or just the way that we are. And we let God do the rest. One young person in our research gave this testimony. He said, you know, this woman at church has just continuously reached out. She sent me a note the other day, like an actual handwritten note, that said, hey, I'm glad that we're getting to know each other. I'm happy you're in my life, and I can't wait to get to know you more in ministry and just as friends. And here's, the how, here's how the young person responded. It was unnecessary. It was outrageous. Yet it was so welcomed. Young people need us. Young adults need us. Who are you going to reach out to? Who are the young people that you're going to invest in? Is this church going to be the church that welcomes young people into this congregation to love them, to care for them, to allow them to use their gifts and talents for the church and for the community? May it be so here at Zionsville. May it be so. Amen.